Word-rooted prayer and worship, keeping your heart close to the flame. The last four messages in this series are going to come under the subtitle, New Testament Worship and the 21st Century Church. To my mind, it's an opinion, the greatest book in print still on the subject of missions is John Piper's Let the Nations Be Glad. And in the first paragraph of the first page of the first chapter, these words resonated with my heart years ago now. I quote them. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary assignment. But worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal in missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. Worship is the fuel of missions. Passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missions begins and ends in worship. God is so anxious to turn people into worshipers that he actually laid down his own life on the cross. That cross on the wall of our sanctuary just reminds us that God the Son literally dies for the creation of worshipers. This defines the church. The church is a collection, a community of worshipers, people who find their greatest joy in giving ultimate honor and reverence and allegiance to the Father who created them and the Lord who redeemed them. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking of worship in terms of just how we express ourselves. And we usually, I think mistakenly, think it's a matter of personal choice or temperament. This makes worship, I think, pathetically small, somewhat anemic. Before worship is a choice of our style or taste, it is It is the sovereign goal and desire of God. It's at the heart of his almighty mission on earth. It is why you were created. It's our motivation for reaching others. Missions matters, of course, because people are lost, but missions ultimately matters because God is hungry for more worshipers. Worship is why there's a church at 1000 Gorham Street instead of a strip mall. Worship is why we are here today. Worship is to the church gathering what food is to the restaurant. 
Whether people comprehend it or not, everyone hungers for the presence of power of God when they come to worship. People have to meet God. It happened again today. Someone caught me. I About three minutes to ten, five minutes to ten, I'm standing right by that door looking out, the office door, looking out at the entrance, the main entrance off Gorham. And especially at about five to ten. It's just a lineup of about 30 cars waiting to turn into the parking lot. And for years, I've stood there, stood there, I'm usually the only one there, and it hits me, and I think, Jesus, if you don't come and touch our hearts, these people are going to be driving out of that parking lot exactly the way they came in. Oh, how we need you to come and work in our lives. Passionate worshipers of God. Okay, in the next two teachings, I'm going to take a look at four passages of Scripture, four snapshots of a spiritual life, a worshiping life. All of them have to do with the infusion of God's Spirit into our hearts. All of these passages deal with how spiritual life is brought into human lives. We're going to look at one this morning. It's a bit longer, and we'll look at Three more next Sunday. Well, I was going to say next Sunday, but we won't next Sunday. It'll be World Impact, the one after that. Point number one. Worship and the quenching of thirsty hearts. The text is John 4, 19 to 24. Please have your Bible with you. This is Jesus and the woman at the well. You know the story. I'm kind of jumping in a little later just for the sake of conciseness. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. I don't know if you noticed it, In one form or another, that word worship is used ten times in five verses. So in other words, this is a passage about worship. No subject is given more attention in the record of the conversation between this woman and Jesus. But the conversation didn't start out about worship, not directly. If you went back to verse 7... There came a woman from Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. That's how it all started. The conversation begins with the issue of drinking water on a hot day. Jesus, opening a door into this woman's life, asks her for a drink of cool, satisfying well water on a hot day. And then... The conversation turns from ordinary water to the satisfying of deeper thirsts and the kind of living water that only Jesus could bring. That's how this whole thing worked. 
You can see that. Jesus said to her, John 4, 13 to 15, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, this isn't great English, but it is very literally translated, will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become a spring of water. I want to talk about that, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's still not tracking with Jesus. But we do see the link, the intentional link in Jesus' mind between, this is important, between true spirit-fed worship and the satisfying of the deepest thirsts of life. So, So in other words, Worship and the quenching of our deepest thirst, those aren't two issues. They're one and the same. Because Jesus wants this woman to come into this kind of fench, thirst quenching, deeply satisfying, uh, life orienting relationship to himself, he puts the spotlight on two hindrances in her life. A. Immediately upon asking Jesus for living water, Jesus answers this woman by bringing up the issue of her living with someone who isn't her husband. It's in 15 to 18. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. The one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Notice, the one you now have, 18. This is not some non-intimate, paternal living arrangement with some family member just to save money. A lot of people have, have gone down that road. She's had this person in the sense that she has had her husband's. Jesus means for us to see a linkage in that phrasing. There's something very striking in that exchange, and it's hard for some people to face. Remember, give me Jesus, give me living water. I won't have to come back here and get this well. Whatever water you've got that satisfies so deeply, I want that. I'm a candidate. Jesus, give me living water. Before he says yes, he does two things. I said two obstacles. Some people have trouble with this. It's hard for them to face. Jesus has one conversation with this woman. As far as we can tell from the text, he has never met her before. He doesn't know her name. She's clearly seeking something deeper than she presently has from Jesus, even though she's not totally clear of the details. She wants it. And notice, first conversation with a seeker. The first conversation Jesus has with a seeker, and he can't close his very first conversation with this seeker of living water without pointing out her sin. Does that seem inappropriate to you? 
Does that seem, does that seem a bit harsh? Legalistic? Doesn't that seem a little bit abrupt? This is a seeker. And this is the first conversation Jesus has. Maybe the only. Really? You got to start pinpointing her adultery? Is Jesus not being very loving here? And he is. He is. And he still works this way in our hearts. Jesus isn't pointing this out merely to condemn this woman. He still wants to give her living water, quenching the thirst of her heart. But he knows there's only one way to reach that end. There's only one starting point on the journey home. She has to make this right. Why do people not find thirst-quenching fulfillment in God? even while attending to the outward forms of their religious routines? Why would anybody go home from church empty, dry? Why does Jesus Christ, God the Son, who died and rose again, who purchased us by his own blood, made us a kingdom of priests, that's worshipers, unto God, seated us in heavenly places, why does the overwhelming thrill of knowing Jesus not rule in every heart? And to find the answer to that, you need to watch Jesus closely here. He knows what he's doing. He reaches out to this woman. She asks him for living water, right flat out. But in spite of what she thinks she may want right now, she isn't ready for living water. She thinks she's ready for living water, but but she hasn't made room for it. She hasn't come to terms with this situation, this sin in her life. And when the sin is forsaken and brought to Jesus, he doesn't beat her over the head. The great great thirst quencher of the heart will give her living water. The spirit will flow. Boy, the lesson here, eh? I'm sure you know it. But let me remind you, just in case you haven't heard it recently. Jesus never deals with any sin in any of our hearts to subtract our joy. Even in the convicting times, his plan is only to free us up, free us up from the empty placebos of joy, the things that Keep us from spotting what's truly crying out in the depths of the heart. There's always divine love in the confrontation and in the conviction. This is preparation for worship. Jesus is drilling for a spring of living water in this woman's heart. But he, he knows the only way to get there. What's Jesus talking to you about in his convicting voice? Because if you think of him as just a divine rule giver trying to take all the fun out of your life, you're never going to understand what he's really trying to do, drill deep for joy.
I said there were these two obstacles, so that was one. B, the whole purpose of a living encounter with Christ is the loss of thirst for anything else. This is easily missed. I mean, worship, we all know, I think, has to do with the glorifying of God in so many different ways. It's expressing honor and adoration to God as the ultimate priority and pleasure of our lives. But the thing is, God isn't honored or glorified if my heart hungers, if my heart hungers for anything else as much as it hungers for God. Jesus says this is why he deals with our hearts. It's not just to cleanse them, true enough, but to direct them, to simplify them. And there's such a steep learning curve in Jesus' creation of worshiping hearts. I mean, many things have a place in my life. Most of them are fine. We all have lots to do. But all these other things are only allowed a certain place in my heart, a certain level in my heart. Only Jesus can be the object of thirst. 13 and 14. Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become a spring of water. I want to talk about that in a minute. Welling up to eternal life. These seem uh, strange words. Learning the meaning of them is, is part of what's involved in what Jesus said, worshiping in spirit and truth. Here's a truth. The, the tricky part of the words of Jesus comes in verse 14. We find this kind of strangely worded promise in that 14th verse. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will, will never be thirsty forever. There it is right there. And, and the problem I have with those words, maybe you do too, is I, I have come to Jesus and I do thirst. Life leaves us dry. Christian people who come by the offices and see us every week are thirsty. We're a church full of thirsty people. We pray because we're people who thirst. But there's no contradiction here. Jesus creates a thirst for God, all right. It's the competing thirst, the competing hungers that he's come to drown out with his presence. The Apostle Paul talks about this same thing. The Apostle Paul, the thirst for Christ and the competing thirsts. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but... One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. He's not talking about his sins. He's talking about his accomplishments, if I took time to go through the context. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. 
Notice those two words in verse 14, the, the upward, there it is, the upward call. All sorts of desires and ambitions call out to you, call out to me for attention and time. They compete for place in our hearts. And then there's what Paul calls the upward call. And I think what Paul clearly means to say is that all the other calls to my heart, whatever they may be, even if necessary, but remember, those are, those are downward in nature. They tie you to earth and the things of this world. They can never lift you up. They're not an upward call. They can never make Christ more real. They can never ultimately satisfy your heart. And I think that last part of Jesus' words in verse 14 of John 4 explain the meaning of never thirsting again. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him, you can only get this from Jesus. We're not talking about the world's religions here. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will, will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him, now he explains why. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus answers to the drought of our hearts the way a spring supplies the needs of a physical thirst. That, that there's a way in which he does this. He, he cares for my ultimate deepest thirst for God by providing living water when that thirst arises. I think it's an important distinction. These words of Jesus about us like a spring, I think they're very carefully chosen because because problems don't just disappear for any of us when we know Jesus. We used to sing a chorus. I'm sorry, I am thrilled we don't sing it anymore. We used to sing, Troubles vanish in the presence of the King. Hearts are mended, troubles vanish. Drove me nuts every time we sang it. Be careful of worship songs that promise you more than the Bible promises. I mean that. Be careful about worship songs that promise you more than the Bible promises. We all know we're singing something that isn't true. Come to Jesus and your troubles, poof. But here's what does happen. And I think it's caught up in that issue of a spring a spring of living water. There is constant resource. Jesus describes spiritual worship, drawing close to life in him, the life of the spirit. He describes it as the relationship between the stream and the spring. There's, a, there's something in Christ, living water, that bubbles up like a spring, even in the driest of circumstances. Troubles don't vanish. There are people listening to me right now 
who are fighting just to make it through one more day. They're right here. Who will only find out, maybe to their surprise, that God will still be a resource for one more day tomorrow. Maybe they can't picture it yet today, but he'll be there tomorrow. There'll be a spring. There'll be nourishment. And then for another day after that, there'll be a spring. They're being watered. They're being held up in ways they couldn't imagine. Something, someone has kept them from totally drying up inside, and that divine spring won't dry up. It'll be there tomorrow too, though you might not be able to picture it yet. The value of worshiping Jesus is the way it trains the affections of the heart. That's what I'm getting at under this second point. The true worshipers of Jesus are spoiled from giving their devotion to anything else. There are other things to be done, for sure. But this thirst for Jesus that the Spirit brings about in our hearts it, it displaces anything that was at the center of my life. It's such a litmus test of my profession for Jesus Christ. Jesus expresses it over and over. It was obviously very close to his heart. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become a spring welling up to eternal life. Or look at this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Same imagery, just a different object now. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And then he says it again. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus repeats himself for my emphasis. I need to know this. The sign of having partaken of Christ deeply is a lack of dominance of any other ambition. That's what worship is all about. It plays a key role in this growth and shaping of the hungers of the heart. And people aren't going to be watered, nourished, satisfied in any lasting way in our church unless this kind of worship is vibrant and living. It's not the coolest band and the neatest lights. I'm not against that. Not against it. But that's not what's going to cut it. People can sense the mechanics of religion. They can sense when the mechanics have replaced the soul of it. In the same way, this woman who was aware of all the proper times, places, and routines of worship, she knew, she knew she didn't have living water. She just knew it. When sin or indifference or formality or just sheer ignorance of the truth or pride or the cares and concerns of this world or the schedule of the day or the pressure of the crowd simply block a simple devotion to Jesus Christ, the lights start to go out in any life and in any church. And so here's Jesus. And he's reeling in this woman's heart. 
She's not there yet. But Jesus is working his way into her empty soul. And he still does this work. He calls us to worship him because he knows only passionate worship in spirit and in truth. Spirit led from the heart. That's the only thing that frees the heart from the disappointment that comes from devotion to anything but God himself. Here's how the Old Testament said it. Psalm 34, 5. Those who look to him are radiant. And I like this. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Looking to God, looking worshipfully to him alone for satisfaction and joy and life. Psalmist said, it will never result in shame. Follow Christ deeply, wherever you are, wherever you're at in life, whether you're the only Christian in the home or in that university class, whether you're young or old, cling to Christ deeply. There's no shame. It will never lead to regret. There are no empty promises. There are no dead ends. There are no deceptive entanglements. Punctuate those words. Those who look to him are radiant. That's the idea Jesus is latching on to. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. Of course, we have to find ways to make that a practical truth. Put feet on it. Parents, parents, show this to your children. Fathers, reveal the priority of Christ in your home. Be very specific. How? Let me ask you this question. Fathers, mothers, how do you demonstrate to your family that everything but Christ leaves you empty? How do you show that? How do you show them that everything but Christ leaves you empty? That may be the most important and far-reaching question you'll ever ask yourself. Don't chicken out on it. 